The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Our theme this week, of course, the key verse, grow in grace. You may wonder, what does that have to do with the messages you're dealing with? I've chosen three vignettes from three different Gospels uh, that give incidents that occurred during the earthly ministry of Christ where he dealt with people who were people of faith, but their doubt was battling their faith. And, and really, this is an important step in growing in grace. In fact, I would say I said this last night, to a very large degree, the whole process of growth in grace is all about allowing our faith to conquer our doubts. And uh, it was actually Peter who wrote that key verse, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Peter this morning. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. And we're going to look at the incident where Peter walked on water because this really epitomizes this whole theme of, of the struggle, the battle that takes place between faith and doubt. What's remarkable about this account is how strong Peter's faith and his sense of personal assurance seemed to be when he stepped out of the boat compared to how quickly he began to sink in despair. And that is a great metaphor for faith and the struggle between faith and doubt, and it reflects perfectly how my own faith is sometimes easily and unexpectedly assaulted by doubt just when I thought my assurance was at its strongest. And so, as we look at this passage, think it through with your own heart in mind, and uh, let's consider what this passage teaches about strong faith and weak faith, about fearless faith and faltering faith, and we will draw out some implications related to the assurance of our salvation. Uh, now, let me, skip, let me skip some of my notes here. I was listening to a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones not too long ago in which he pointed out that this whole idea of assurance of salvation is really one of the most prominent subjects in the New Testament. And when he said that, I thought, I had to think that through because I'd really never noticed that. But it's true that virtually every New Testament epistle was written to address some doubt or answer some question or settle some uncertainty, and all of them aimed at stimulating or reinforcing the assurance of believers. That's a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. Scripture encourages us to have assurance. And as we said last night, it's not inherently brash or presumptuous to be confident in your faith, but God wants us to be. I was doing some reading recently in a totally different area, reviewing the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent. Trent was the Roman Catholic Church Council that was convened in the mid-1500s in order to hammer out a kind of official response from the Roman Catholic Church to the Protestant Reformation. And so they were responding to the, to the Reformers. And, and let's be honest, the Protestant Reformation had embarrassed the Roman Catholic hierarchy in a major way, because in addition to the many doctrinal errors and, and patently unbiblical and extra-biblical teachings, that the Reformers pointed out and challenged. They also shined the bright light of biblical truth on centuries of exploitation of papal power and gross corruption of the priesthood, spiritual abuse that was taking place for material profit, including the sale of indulgences and the sale of church offices and political favors for money. And all underneath all of this was the most shocking kind of moral rot that went right to the top in the papal hierarchy. And the Roman Catholic Church was totally corrupt. That's, that's really what sparked, helped to spark the Protestant Reformation. And the church was having to, Catholic Church was having to face that fact. And so the Council of Trent cleaned up or papered over some of the more obvious exhibitions of clerical debauchery. And at the very least, we could say that they they they, they did some things to try to subdue the rank corruption of the priesthood, which had been the hallmark of the medieval church. Um, and, you know, you sometimes see movies that portray medieval monks and stuff as corrupt, you know, drunkards, 
and debauched men and all. That's not too far off the mark. That's what the visible church had become. And in the midst of all this, one other thing that the Council of Trent accomplished was this. They gave some clear definition to certain Roman Catholic doctrines that had always been kind of hazy or abstruse, such as the doctrine of justification, which was, in fact, really the focal point of doctrine in the Protestant Reformation. And so the Council of Trent wanted to define the Roman Catholic view on this. But fundamentally, what they were doing was a backlash against Protestant teaching. And the popes and the bishops of the 16th century were really obviously not eager to convene a council to discuss these areas of church life and doctrine that needed reform. So it took years to get the Council of Trent really going. Meetings of that council stretched out over 30 years' time. And they met in fits and starts, and, and the, the, if, you, if you look back and read the history of the Council of Trent, for a while they look almost half-hearted about what they're doing. And uh, two decades, they really didn't decide much or do much or accomplish anything. And only in the final stages of that council did they show any kind of enthusiasm for their work. And by then, they were so eager to antagonize Protestants that, uh, that they cranked out document after document pronouncing anathema on the Protestant reformers, and in the process, mainly, I think, because they were more interested in answering Protestantism than they were in clarifying the biblical truth of the issues they were dealing with, they got several major points of doctrine wrong, clearly wrong, demonstrably wrong, and uh, that, that, that's the case in pretty much every set of decrees they issued. And I want to give you an example of that from the document I was reading just a few weeks ago. In their decree on the, on the doctrine of justification, the Council of Trent, this is the sixth session of Trent, chapter 9, they said this, and I'll quote from them. They said, It is not to be said that sins are forgiven or have been forgiven to anyone who boasts of his confidence and certainty of the remission of sins. In other words, they're saying, while, God, while we can know with certainty that God does forgive sins. There's, there's not an individual anywhere who can say with certainty, my sins are forgiven. Just imagine what sort of confusion and uncertainty that thrusts people into. But that is, to this day, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. I mentioned last night that Catholic doctrine more or less makes assurance of salvation impossible. And then the council went on to say, to say this. This was the conclusion they drew, quote, no one can know with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. You can't know that you've obtained the grace of God. And that's why no faithful Roman Catholic can really ever be sure of his salvation, even though they have thousands of, maybe hundreds of thousands of priests in thousands of confessionals every day telling people that the sins they confess to the priests are forgiven. Those priests are giving people a deadly false assurance, and even Rome's official doctrine acknowledges that. But Scripture says this. I quoted this last night, 1 John 5, 13. You may know that you have eternal life. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, Romans 8, 15. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, 1 John 5.10. <clears throat> we are supposed to be diligent to make our calling and election sure, 2 Peter 1.10. <clears throat> so, far from saying what the Roman Catholic Church says, that it's sinful, even damnably evil, to, to be certain that our sins are forgiven and to know that we have received the grace of God, Scripture says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, Hebrews 10.35. <clears throat> and Scripture everywhere consistently encourages and commends assurance. And nowhere are we ever taught to live in a state of perpetual doubt about our standing before God. Never does the Bible suggest that we should rely on the false promises of a, of a mere man in a confessional booth who really ultimately can't offer anything more than a kind of temporary absolution anyway. That's a spiritual sort of bait-and-switch offer that can never 
usher anyone into the true rest that is the birthright of everyone whose faith is authentic. And still, still talking about the doctrine of assurance, the first test of whether someone's faith is authentic or not is the object of that faith. We saw that last night. What or whom are you trusting? And if your faith is in the decrees of some church council, or if you have placed your trust in a corrupt and lying priesthood, that's not authentic faith. And, really closer to home for most of us, I think, if you're trusting in your own native abilities, if your faith is anchored in the memory of some decision you made or some act you performed in order to obtain salvation, that's not authentic faith either. And if your hope rests in the level of spiritual sophistication or doctrinal understanding you've achieved, if, if you salve your doubts by reminding yourself that you've attained some position of rank or longevity in the church, maybe you're a Bible study leader or an Awana leader or, or maybe you've been a steady attender in Sunday school since childhood, if that's what you're looking to as an anchor for some sense of spiritual security, then your hope is, an authentic, is, is, a, is a false hope. But authentic faith always looks to God. As we saw last night, Christ is the only true object for saving faith. Not self-potential, not human willpower, not personal accomplishment, not self-reform, not self-determination, not zeal or passion or commitment or whatever, but Christ Himself is the only proper object of our faith. He is God, you know. To borrow a key Pauline expression, the Yahweh of the Old Testament has revealed Himself in the New Testament more fully as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an expression you'll find in Romans 15, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Ephesians 1, verse 3, Colossians 1, verse 3, and so on. There are variations of that title in 20 or so other verses in the New Testament. And it's a powerful affirmation of the sonship and deity of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that the one true God is is the object of our faith, and if He is the object of your faith, then your faith must rest specifically in Christ alone as Lord and Savior. There's only one true God, and there's only one mediator between God and men, the, the man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. So, the proper object of faith, I cannot stress this enough, we talked about it last night, the proper object of faith is absolutely crucial Your faith must be in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and in Christ Himself. Jesus said, I am from above, and unless you believe that I am, unless you believe in me, unless you make me the object of your faith, you will die in your sins, John 8, 23 and 24. Which means, obviously, we have to trust His Word. We have to trust His promises. We have to know that He is faithful to His covenant. And we trust Him implicitly, and He's therefore the sole ground and the sole object of our assurance. If you get nothing else from my messages this weekend, understand that, please. He is the only authentic ground and anchor for our assurance. We look to Him for assurance. We don't try to ground our assurance in our own works and in our own abilities, and certainly not in popes or priests or sacraments or ceremonies. And that, you may think, takes us pretty far away from Matthew 14. But actually, it sums up one of the key lessons of our text, Matthew 14. And I want to start in verse 22, but our focus is really going to be on verse 31. That's where we'll key in. And before I read, let me give you the context. This is the evening of the day when Jesus fed the 5,000. This was a remarkable miracle and one of the most famous and well-documented days in the in the Galilean ministry of Christ. Everyone who was there, 5,000 people, knew that this was a miracle, and it was a miracle of, it was a sign of messianic proportions. It was exactly the kind of miracle all of Israel had been hoping for, you know, free food, no preparation necessary. And I think they took it as a sign that the millennial kingdom was dawning. This is going to have a kind of heaven on earth where hard work is abolished and the curse of sin is overthrown. 
And they were ready for that, just like you and I would be. This marked a turning point, a major turning point, perhaps the major turning point in Jesus' ministry, but in the opposite way you might expect. People now recognize that Jesus' miracles, the healings, the authority over demons, His authority over the Pharisees, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, all of these are irrefutable proofs that He is the Messiah. And at the same time, they begin to realize He's not quite the kind of Messiah we were hoping for. They wanted a strong military and political leader who would overthrow the Roman rule, who would establish his own government, and he would rule the entire world from David's throne in Jerusalem. That's what they were hoping for, a Messiah who would make their lives easy and trouble-free. That didn't seem to be Jesus' agenda. That wasn't what he preached about. And he demanded that they receive him on his own terms. <clears throat> and in fact, that whole message is, is uh, recorded for us. The highlights of it are recorded for us in John 6. And you see at the beginning of that chapter, multitudes following him. And by the end of the chapter, they leave because they don't like what he's teaching. And this passage, our passage, Matthew 14, is describing that same incident that's recorded in John 6, where after he fed the 5,000, Uh, John 6, verses 14 and 15 says that when the people recognized that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah, they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king. And so Jesus withdrew. He left that gathering. By the way, there is coming a time when, in the words of Revelation 11, 15, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign on earth forever and ever. I believe that. They believed that. But what they didn't realize is this wasn't the time or the means by which God ordained for the kingdom to be inaugurated, for people to take Jesus by force and make Him king. And so He withdrew from the multitudes, and later that same night, under cover of darkness and in the middle of the high winds and rough waters, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, the Lake Lake Tiberias, in order to get from where he fed the 5,000 back to his home base in Capernaum, trying to get away from the crowds who were following him. But John tells us, in the Gospel of John, that the next morning all the people got into boats and they came after him to Capernaum, wanting him to do another miracle for their breakfast. Yeah, it's breakfast time now. Feed the 5,000 again. And Jesus knew what they wanted. In John 6, verses 26 and 27, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, because you saw, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. See, they weren't interested in the spiritual truths he was teaching them. They wanted more of the literal bread and fishes. And what follows Immediately in John 6, remember, is the bread of life discourse, which had the immediate effect of severely offending and turning away the large majority of those people who had been following Jesus. And so in 24 hours' time, he went from delighting the the multitudes with a free meal to where he chased away all but a handful of close disciples, faithful men. And even among the ones who stayed, you had Judas. So this is remarkable to see. All these people whose faith was superficial, they weren't true believers. They were followers of Jesus, but they didn't really trust Him or believe in Him. And He turned away thousands of these people because they were half-hearted and unsound in what they believed and unclear about whom they believed in and uncommitted to the truth He proclaimed. Now understand, these were people who had left their homes and their families and their jobs in order to be affiliated with Jesus. Scripture calls them disciples. They would have been devoted, even fanatical followers of Christ, as long as they could have Him on their own terms. But that isn't real faith, and so Christ deliberately drove them away. And that's the context of our passage. It's all about true faith versus phony religion. And the whole incident begins really on a triumphant note with the feeding of the 5,000, which is one of Jesus' most important miracles. 
And then it ends on a decidedly sour note when it becomes patently obvious that among the multitudes who seemed most devoted to Christ, really only a few truly trusted Him. And, and Jesus turns to them and says, do you want to go away too? So that gives you the sort of spirit of this thing. And Matthew 14, 13 says, Jesus had taken a boat in order to get to a remote place, and this multitude had followed Him on foot from the cities. That's when He fed the 5,000. And, and if you've ever seen the geography along the east shore of Galilee, you understand that this crowd of 5,000 people who had showed up there had traveled over long distances and harsh terrain in order to get where Jesus was. These people were clearly willing to sacrifice a lot in order to follow Him, and yet their faith in Him was not authentic, wholehearted commitment, and the proof is that they turned away as soon as He started teaching something they didn't like. And in the vignette we're going to look at this morning, it becomes clear that even among the best and most faithful of Jesus' closest disciples, their faith in Him was surprisingly meager and weak and fragile. They were beset with doubts, and they were prone to failure. And Peter, of course, is the the living, breathing example of that. As you look at this passage, on one level it's discouraging and and alarming to see Peter sink so quickly from what looks like strong assurance and, and, and virile faith, instantly he sinks into utter despair. And on the other hand, it's encouraging to me, I think, to, to know that that is the nature of true faith, and it's a battle we all fight, where our faith is easily beset with doubts, attacked by doubts, even when we think our faith is the strongest. And assurance isn't always easy, and it's not normally settled once and for all with a permanent, unshakable confidence. Even after you've attained assurance, you're still going to be subject to some moments of doubt. But assurance, and this is what we learn from this passage, assurance is something to be nurtured and cultivated and held on to. Strong assurance is something that usually goes hand-in-hand with spiritual maturity. It's the fruit of a steady walk of faith. It's not something that typically springs up full-grown at the first sign of faith. And even Peter struggled with, in fact, he struggled a lot with fickleness and unsteadiness. And if that was true of the Apostle Peter, there's no reason you and I should expect to be immune to conflicts or doubts when our faith comes under attack. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And according to Hebrews 3.15, the ultimate mark of authentic faith is that we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And implied in that statement is the assumption that our faith, if it's genuine, will come under attack, just like Peter's did. Now, Incidentally, all four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew, Mark, and John all record that Jesus and His disciples went back to Capernaum after the feeding of the 5,000. They went back that night by boat. And according to John 6.15, when the multitudes began this plot to try to take Jesus and make Him king by force, He withdrew to the mountain by Himself. Matthew 14, 23, went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And so this is the backstory to how they got to Capernaum. Jesus goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. He's all alone. None of the disciples are with him. He's there till evening, Matthew says. <clears throat> and verse 22 says, Jesus had instructed the disciples to go by boat to the other side of the lake, to Capernaum. As I said last night, Capernaum was hometown for most of the 12 disciples. It was more or less sort of the home base for Jesus' public ministry. So there really wasn't anything remarkable about Him telling them to take the boat back to Capernaum, except that this signaled the end of what had seemed like a spectacularly successful ministry to the multitudes that followed Jesus into the wilderness. All of a sudden, the whole thing collapses right after the biggest miracle they'd ever seen Jesus do. And all three of the Gospels record, that record this incident, you've got Matthew, Mark, and John, all of them say 
that the sea was rough and the disciples were rowing that night against a fierce wind. So they're not going to be in a good mood. You know, the ministry has collapsed. Jesus sends them back to Capernaum. They're in a boat rowing against a fierce wind. And if you're not already in Matthew 14, look at this. Matthew 14, verse 24, when Jesus finished praying, it says, the boat, that's the boat where the disciples were rowing, was by this time a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, follow the chronology of this passage. A surprisingly long time elapses between verse 23 and verse 25. Jesus is still on the mountain praying when evening comes, verse 23. That's sundown or thereabout. The disciples' boat was already a long way from land, beaten by the waves, so they're rowing against the waves, and yet they've already gone too far from the land, really, to to swim back. And if you think Jesus immediately ran to the boat to quell the storm and get the disciples through this trial, that's not what happened. Verse 25 says, In the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. Now, here's the timetable. The night was divided into four watches. You had, it started at 6 p.m. From 6 to 9 was the first watch. From 9 to midnight, second watch. Midnight to 3, third watch. And the fourth watch, this is when Jesus finally comes to the disciples' boat. The fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., closer to sunrise than it was to sunset. And sunset, remember, was when this ordeal began for the disciples. They're rowing all night against a stiff wind. It had been a long and grueling night, and John 6, 19 says they had rowed only about three or four miles. It's hard to imagine a more discouraging way to spend the night after an already exhausting and an already discouraging day. And to add insult to injury, Mark 6, 48 says, about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. And listen to what Mark adds to the account. Mark says, He meant to pass them by. So, it's like Jesus is out for a stroll, and He's making better time walking on the water than the twelve of these guys are with oars. There's only two ways to respond to that. One, and this is probably the normal human response, is to be terrified. That was the disciples' first response, Matthew 14, 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Now, remember, they were already in fear for their lives. When it takes all night for a team of a dozen fishermen to, in a rowboat to go just three or four miles into a stiff wind and high waves, the danger of capsizing in a situation like that in the dark is real. They were already frightened, you can be sure, and to make matters worse, They had toiled through several terrifying hours of darkness already. They're exhausted. Their arms are tired. They look up, and they see this ghostly presence on the water. Now, there's background on this, too. Hebrew lore about the sea was full of stories of sea monsters and water demons. The Jews were not, for the most part, a a seafaring culture, and the idea of an apparition that arises out of the water was just about the most terrifying thing they could imagine. And so, try to sense what their frame of mind would be. They were exhausted, they were frustrated, they were frightened, they were fearing for their lives already. And then, just before sunup, here comes Jesus walking on the water as if He's out for His morning exercise. You'd think that was ghostly too. But, verse 27, immediately... Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, at this point, Matthew records some details that none of the other Gospels give. Matthew 14 is the only record of this incident. Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
And they, when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now that is an amazing window into the private dealings of Jesus with the twelve. We wouldn't know anything about this if Matthew hadn't recorded it, but I'm glad Matthew recorded it. He was an eyewitness because he's one of the twelve. I think Jesus' interaction with his disciples must have been, the private conversations they had and all that, must have been full of remarkable lessons about the power of Christ and the frailty of their faith and the difficulties of discipleship. And none of the Gospels even aim at telling us every incident and every miracle like this that happened. And, and that would be especially true of the private interaction Jesus had with the Twelve. I would love to know some of the things that transpired that were never written down. We know there's a lot of it because uh, unrecorded details about the miracles of Jesus and the, the private teaching of Jesus, because at the end of uh, the, his gospel, the apostle John tells us that there were many other things, so many other things that Jesus did, which neither John nor any of the other gospels recorded, that John says if every one of them were to be written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. But let's be honest, this account doesn't really embellish Peter's reputation. He does look for a moment like the paragon of bold faith and mature faithfulness, but the speed with which he begins to sink is almost amazing as the spunk that got him to step out of the boat in the first place. And he comes off looking, well, dripping wet. You know, he looks like a hero when he takes that first step. But he is dripping wet and humiliated by the time he gets back into the boat. And if I were Peter, I don't think I'd want people to make a whole lot out of this incident either. But it is a great object lesson about the frailty of faith and the relationship of faith and assurance and the battle between faith and doubt. And I think the most telling verse in this whole account is verse 31, and that's where I want to focus our attention this morning. As Peter starts to sink beneath the waves, verse 31 says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Little faith? Peter got out of the boat, didn't he? If his faith was so slight and trifling, what does this say about the 11 guys who didn't even think about stepping out of the boat? But Jesus castigates Peter for the inadequacies of his faith, and that makes this a rebuke of, for all of us, because let's be honest, stepping out of a rowboat onto a stormy sea in the darkness of early morning pretty, make, pretty much makes whatever steps of faith you and I normally take seem pretty timid by comparison, right? So when Jesus says to Peter, oh, you of little faith, he's rebuking all of us. Why did you doubt? That's a profound statement, and it's, it's rich with implications for the doctrine of assurance. And so this morning, I want to consider with you what that statement from Jesus says about our faith and our doubts and the object of our faith and the weakness of our faith, the danger of coddling our doubts, and the importance of settled assurance. Now, this phrase, O oh, you of little faith, is actually a single word in the Greek, oligopiste, oligopiste. It's an epithet, which means it's a kind of a, a nickname, little faith. Hey, little faith, why did you doubt? And that same expression, oligopiste, little faith, you find five times in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's always from the lips of Jesus. You find it, first of all, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is rebuking the sin of materialistic worry. You know, people who are anxious about what we're going to wear and who's going to provide for us. And in Matthew 6, verse 30, Jesus says, If God so loved the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, if God gives that much attention to what the grass looks like, don't you think He's going to give you clothing, O oh, you of little faith? That was the first time He said it. And in the second occurrence is an incident that actually foreshadows this very narrative. In Matthew 8, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus is with the disciples in a boat on the, on the sea, and a, and a major storm blows in. You know, there's always a storm, because this is true, that the Sea of Galilee is subject to these 
high winds and, and dangerous waves and sudden storms that come seemingly out of nowhere. And they got caught in a storm like that. And as Matthew describes it in Matthew 8, Jesus is in the prow of the boat asleep. He's up there on the very front, the point of the boat, asleep. And the disciples are literally in fear for their lives. And so in desperation, they wake him up. And the narrative, Matthew 8, 26, gives us the impression that, you know, Jesus is still sort of stretching and yawning, and he's very calm in the midst of this storm. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose, Matthew says, and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So, Peter had heard this expression before. And even after this, twice more, in Matthew 16, 8 and Matthew 17, 20, Jesus again will chide the disciples with this same expression, O you of little faith. Now think about that. Ordinarily, if not always, when Jesus rebukes someone for the meagerness of their faith, He aims that rebuke at the people closest to Him, the twelve. And in this case, He levels the rebuke at the one disciple, Peter, who arguably had shown the strongest faith of all, enough faith to step out of a boat onto a stormy sea, and yet Peter's faith was fragile and easily gave way to doubt, and he almost lost, he would have lost his life if Jesus hadn't been there to lift him up. That puts the decrepitude of our faith in a, in, into an interesting perspective, doesn't it? Jesus' rebuke to Peter is a rebuke to all of us, because we are certainly no better than the apostles were. Our faith is not even close to what it should be. If Jesus called the twelve disciples men of little faith, I wonder what he'd say about our brand of comfortable Christianity. And if you often feel the deficiencies of your faith, you're in good company there too. Scripture indicates that the disciples themselves realized, they felt it, they struggled with it, that their faith was weak and small. And in Luke 17, verse 5, we're told that at one point, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Same prayer as the guy we looked at last night. Help my unbelief. Cure my unbelief. Now, that should be our prayer as well. Lord, increase our faith. Our faith needs strengthening. Our assurance needs to be conscious and biblically informed. A lot of people who think they have assurance of salvation are actually just duped and anesthetized because they, they, they just have a kind of ap- apathetic presumption. They assume, yeah, I'm, I'm good because I'm better than somebody else or whatever. They don't doubt their salvation because they have truly, not because they've truly settled the, the issue, but because they've never truly thought seriously about it. And I know for a fact that's the case. Because Jesus said at the judgment, many will be utterly shocked to find themselves rejected by Christ and shut out of heaven because they assumed they were okay. They called Him Lord, Lord, but they didn't have genuine faith. So assurance is an important issue, and if it's something you don't think much about, I hope to get you thinking biblically about it as we consider why Peter had enough faith to step out of the boat, but he lacked the assurance that's necessary to keep walking on the water. What we have here is clearly an example of the very same character defect that caused Peter to boast, you know, that he would never deny Christ, and then before the rooster crowed the next morning, Peter had denied his master three times with cursing and with oaths. His sense of self-confidence was strong, and his faith in Christ was actually something less than he thought it was. He had a tendency to think more of himself than he should, and that always causes us to depend less on Christ than we should. You and I aren't going to step out of a boat and try to walk on a heaving lake in gale force winds. At least I hope you won't do that, unless you've got your scuba gear on. But we are faced with a similar conundrum every day. We're called to follow Christ and obey His commandments And we don't have the ability to do that on our own. We can't obey even the first and most fundamental commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You can't do that. 
You haven't done that a single day in your life. None of us has. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and we are fallen and defiled, and we are, frankly, incapable of meeting the standard Jesus calls us to. What's that standard? Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's as impossible for us as walking on water. Actually, it's more impossible for us than it would be to walk on water. So, there are lessons from Peter's experience that apply to you and to me, and that's what I want to explore with you this morning. Here are four principles of faith and assurance that we learn from Peter's failed attempt to walk on water. If you'd like to take down the outline, I'll make it as easy as possible for you. Lesson number one, faith is a gift of God. That's lesson number one here. Faith is a gift of God. Where do you think Peter got the faith to step out of the boat in the first place? Did he summon that up out of his own heart? Was there some inherent power in Peter that enabled him to gather enough courage and raw willpower so that because he believed he could do it, he could walk on water? You know, mind over matter, like your average phony miracle worker typically claims. If you believe strongly enough, you can do anything. Obviously, that's not the case. Faith, as we talked last night, faith is a gift of God. And every time Jesus ever commended Peter for his faith, he made that point right away. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus was saying, God is the source of your faith. He's the one who gives you spiritual understanding. You don't have anything praiseworthy that you have not received from God as a gift from His gracious hand. And Peter tacitly affirms that truth right here in our narrative when he says, verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It would have been the most presumptuous kind of folly for Peter to step out of the boat if Jesus hadn't said, come. You know, faith is not a, a sort of artificial confidence that we can work our own miracles. Faith is trust in what the Lord says. And in this case, Jesus did say to Peter, come. And so taking that step was a remarkable act of faith. And those first steps on the water were the amazing fruit of genuine faith. It must have been stunning, really, to see Peter step out of the boat like that and start to walk towards Jesus until he starts to get bogged down in the waves and sink. You know, But for the next few seconds, as, as Peter's knees begin to sink beneath into the waves, it must have been terrifying. Because they're out there... It says two miles at least in the middle of the lake, and it was certainly frightening for Peter. Maybe the other guys were laughing, but it strikes me as, in fact, humorous when Jesus takes Peter's hand and raises him up again. This is a funny scene. I can't picture this any other way in my mind. I'm sure these guys were laughing. They're guys. They're fishermen. They're down-to-earth guys. I was watching a YouTube video that somebody put up recently where this guy is sitting there at school while the kids are coming out of school and there's an icy spot and every kid that comes around slips on the ice and this guy is filming all these kids one after another going down and he's just laughing his guts out because these kids are falling and, and all the women who commented on his video said, how dare you laugh at that? They could have gotten hurt. <laughs> these are guys and I promise you they're laughing. They're fishermen. They're down-to-earth guys. They, these are not refined and nat naturally uh, sort of pious types. So you know they were laughing at Peter. When he comes back out of the water, he's dripping wet, and Jesus helps him back into the boat. And then when Jesus says to Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I don't take that as a stern rebuke. There's humor in it because it's full of irony. Peter had just stepped out of a boat onto a lake in a raging gale. And from a human perspective, that is an amazing step of faith. It, it is literally unprecedented in all the annals of human history. Nobody had ever done this before. And Jesus' instant response is a line that they've heard from Him already many times. Oh, you of little faith. How quickly Peter went from heroic faith to dripping wet panic before he even made it to Jesus. It's funny. 
And yet, from where most of us sit, we really have to admire this. This is a remarkable step of faith for Peter. He did walk on the water. That's something that in all of human history, no one else besides Jesus has ever truly done. I know there are people who claim they've done it, but there's no YouTube videos of that. And yet, Jesus doesn't commend Peter for his act of faith. He rebukes him for his doubt. That's because faith is not meritorious. It's a gift. Notice, Jesus does nothing here but encourage Peter's faith. Verse 29, he said, come. He didn't say anything like, you know, be careful, those are pretty high waves. So the doubt that assaults Peter's faith comes from within him. The faith to step out from the boat was from God. But the doubt that made him sink was Peter's own, cultivated in a heart and mind that was prone to place too much confidence in his own flesh. And the arm of flesh will always fail you. Peter took his eyes off Jesus. He failed because, and you can see it right here in the text, he failed because he concerned himself with the wind and the waves rather than the Lord of the wind and the waves. Now, this was after the stilling of the storm, Matthew 8. How could Peter so easily miss the point of that? In fact, I would have said, if I were Peter, Lord, still the storm and and then bid me come to you, right? But verse 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Why was he focused on the wind? And why, especially after he stepped out of the boat, after he had successfully stepped on the water, why suddenly was he so focused on the wind? It was probably about to blow him over. But I also think that his success went to his head, and he imagined this was something he was doing rather than something Christ empowered him to do. And this is the difficulty for all of us. You know, it's one thing to trust Christ to support us on a sea of turmoil in the midst of a fierce storm. It is something else entirely to imagine that you yourself possess the power to walk on the water. And there's a very fine line between the two. As Peter's experience demonstrated, it is possible to step out of the boat in faith, genuinely trusting Christ, and yet stumble after you take those first steps because faith gives way to a sinful self-confidence. And we discover through our failures that the ability to walk on water was never really ours to begin with. It's the power of Christ that makes that possible. And even the The faith that prompts our first step is a gracious gift from God. It's not something we conjure up out of our own hearts by an act of sheer willpower. So there's nothing here that Peter ever should have thought he was doing. And that means he didn't need to fear failure in the first place. The fact that he did, the fact that he became afraid, tells us he was trusting too much in himself. So that's lesson number one. Faith is a gift of God. Here's lesson number two. Number two, faith comes in small and fragile measure. Faith comes to us in a small and fragile measure. Listen to Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. That's a potent verse. Paul is saying, first of all, that if we understand that faith is a gift, if we truly understood that, it would keep us from trading away our faith for this sinful self-confidence, to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You keep your eyes on the fact that even your faith is a gift from God that will keep you from thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But here's the key point. Think with sober judgment, Paul says, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned, which tells us faith comes to us in specific measures, and it is allotted to us by God. It is a gift, and it's a gift that comes in a specific measure, and the key is to live by that faith, to nurture it, to use it to make sober judgments, hold tightly to it, and don't give in to the temptation to trade your faith away for a fleshly presumption or a carnal self-confidence or over-reliance on the arm of flesh. It has always intrigued me 
that Jesus chides Peter this way for the smallness of his faith. Because again, after all, Peter had faith enough to step out of a fishing boat. This was a rowboat onto a stormy body of water. And I can't imagine a scenario in which I would be likely to do that. And at that moment, when Peter takes that first step and doesn't immediately just plunge beneath the waves, his faith looks to me like great faith. That's, if, if the story stopped there, that's what you'd think, right? But the real test of faith's strength and maturity is not that first step. It's all about the staying power. The one who endures to the end will be saved, Mark 13, 13. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We can be confident that we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end, Hebrews 3, 14. So the distinguishing mark of authentic faith is its staying power. But the good news is that the same God who gives us that measure of faith is also the one who keeps us in the faith. And I wonder if towards the end of his life, when he was a much older man, Peter thought of this incident on the sea in the storm when he wrote 1 Peter 1.5, which says, true believers are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I'm not suggesting that faith instantly and automatically conquers every doubt. That's why assurance is sometimes elusive. But, in fact, it is perfectly normal to be, for faith to be beset with doubts. And you see that here with Peter. Even a spectacular step of faith can really instantly be derailed by the stumbling block of doubt if faith loses its focus. Faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive Doubts assault our faith at the most inopportune moment, and that's why it's crucial to keep your faith focused on the proper object, and of course, that's Christ. And in fact, it brings us to lesson three. First, faith is a gift of God. Second, faith comes in small and fragile measure, and in fact, faith is as fragile as the vessel that holds it. But here's some good news. Lesson three, faith is as powerful as its object Faith is as powerful as its object. Jesus calls Peter little faith, oligopiste. And that may sound like a put-down, and in, in a way, in a, in, a, in, a, in a man sort of way, it was. It's a, it's a nickname that gives a friendly sort of insult, little faith. But there's, and in fact, there, there is, I, I would guess, a, a certain note of rebuke in the expression because Jesus wouldn't commend him for his doubt. But the fact is, little faith is actually quite a good start. Peter's little faith was enough to give him courage to step out of the boat. Jesus said a measure of faith no bigger than a mustard seed is enough to move either mountains or, mustard, or mulberry trees. Luke 17, verse 6, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Matthew 17, 20, truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, think about what Jesus is saying there, because, you know, the televangelists get this wrong all the time. You can't, you can't take that at face value and run with it. You have to think about what's behind this. What is he actually saying? Those things are true, that if you had enough faith, you could say to this mountain, move, and it would move. That's true, not because there's power in faith per se. Those promises are true because if your faith has the proper object, Christ, He's the one who holds the universe together and nothing is impossible for Him. He's the only proper object and focus of faith. And think about what faith is. Faith is implicit trust in Him. That means belief in His promises, obedience to His commands. Faith is not the irrational presumption that many people think it is, you know, where if you believe strongly in something, in anything, and if you believe strongly enough that your, that your belief in it will make it true. That's what a lot of people portray faith as. But believing something doesn't make it true. And that's not what Jesus was saying here when he talks about mulberry trees and mountains. 
You know, I always think of that song, I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Remember that song? My former pastor, Warren Wiersbe, used to say, nobody really believes that. Because if that were true, we'd be up to our armpits in flowers. <laughs> but authentic faith, real faith, has a true object. And the object of faith, not, not believing per se, but the object of faith is where the power lies. In other words, the power that enabled Peter to walk on water came from Christ, not from within Peter. Peter's problem was that the focus of his faith shifted from the true object to the wind. The proof is seen in the fact that when Christ lifted Peter up again, he was able to walk on the water just fine. And it wasn't just the fact that he believed he could step out of the boat that gave him the power to do it. It was the fact that he was being obedient to Jesus who had said, come. And that applies to the mountains and the mulberry trees as well. If you don't have some definitive promise or command from God, then whatever thing you are believing in, isn't, if it's not necessarily His will, it's not going to happen because the power is not in your faith. It's in the object of your faith. And the fact that Peter was able to walk on the water after Jesus lifted him up lets us know that Peter's faith, even after this, was still intact. And to me, this is the most encouraging lesson in the whole account. Let's review. Lesson number one, faith is a gift of God. Lesson number two, faith comes in small and fragile measure. Number three, faith is as powerful as its object. Now, number four, faith can survive even when assurance fails. Your faith can survive even if your assurance is under attack. Peter had these frequent sort of spurts of faith followed almost instantly by lapses, sort of his trademark. You know, here he steps out of the boat and incredibly, while he is standing on top of this heaving body of water, he immediately starts to sink. That's a perfect metaphor for the easy and almost instant fallibility of Peter's faith. Every time he experiences a triumph, remember Peter's great confession, Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And then he goes on to say, and I tell you, Peter, and on this, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This was Peter's most triumphant moment during the earthly ministry of Christ. But it's just two verses later when Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him for prophesying that he, Jesus, would die. And Jesus has to say to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, notice what Jesus is saying to him again. You've lost the focus of your faith. Your mind right now is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is two verses after his most triumphant moment. And then there was Peter's infamous boast about his willingness to die with Christ. And before the rooster crowed the next morning, he had denied Christ three times with cursing, almost instantly, his faith turns to failure. And what's significant, really, about that incident where he, he denies Christ is that Jesus knew Peter would fail before it even happened. He told Peter in painful detail everything that was about to happen. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And Peter's faith didn't fail. His sanctification stalled momentarily. His courage collapsed. His assurance was shaken. But his faith survived the failure. And Jesus knew it would because he commissioned Peter for apostolic ministry in practically the same breath with which he foretold Peter's failure. Remember, he says, I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. And when you've turned again, that is, when you, after you've repented, after this is all over, strengthen your brothers. That's an apostolic commission. And Peter's assurance came to him 
in the wake of his failures. And you see it in full bloom at Pentecost, when Peter stands up and he's the one who proclaims the gospel to the nations. You see it again when he answers the captain of the Sanhedrin in Acts 5, verse 29, and says, we must obey God rather than men. He suddenly becomes fearless. His faith was under attack. His assurance faltered. But God made sure that his faith didn't fail. Let me sum up with this. Settled assurance is the fruit of true faith. Don't be discouraged if your faith is assaulted by doubts. By all means, seek assurance, nurture your faith, pursue the hope that's set before you. Don't be tempted to give up in despair if you stumble in the dark or or sink in the storm. And above all, do not take your eyes off Christ, who is the one true object of authentic faith. He will preserve your faith, those trials will perfect your faith, and the Holy Spirit will grant you assurance. Let's pray. Lord, we learn from this because we know and sense deeply our own weakness, the weakness of our faith. Our history is as littered with failures as Peter's was. And we confess, Lord, that we need your strength. We need faith from you. We pray along with the disciples, Lord, increase our faith for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. 